Hey guys, Matt Gurney here. Jen Gerson's here with me. It is the latest episode of The Line Podcast, recording this one March 1st, 2024. Huge news in federal politics. Documents on the Winnipeg lab basically showing us that we were right all along. The Online Harms Act has landed. We're going to get into that. And I think Jen and I are in agreement that it is 75% of a great bill and the other 25% might kill it. The other thing, of course, is going to be the breaking news that hit us this week, the death of Brian Mulroney. All that and more on the latest episode of The Line Podcast. All right. Well, I mean, we we had so much to talk about this week uh, already. And on Thursday, there's some news landed. That was um, not a surprise, but shocking. You know, when an 84-year-old man passes away, you can't be surprised, but you can be shocked. It's funny, Jen, because you had mentioned to me before we we even did this podcast that you wanted to talk about you were recently called uh, middle-aged. Oh, no, let me let me let me set up this joke. All right, go. All right, I'm going to tie it back to Mulrooney, but I want you to take the joke because it actually does fit. So go. Okay, so I would like to speak to the uh, commenter in our YouTube comment section from last week. I don't remember your name exactly, and I haven't looked it up. Because your memory's failing. That's true. He said something to the effect of, <laughs> it's so cute when middle-aged woman Jen Gerson talks about Goon Cave. Isn't that adorable? And I would like to say to this gentleman, this individual, this child, child. before me, this child before me, I've been talking about goon caves, masturbation, all sorts of terrible sex acts since, you know, you were still You were watching. in diapers. You were in diapers since <laughs> you were still watching Freddy, that Friday Freddy uh -huh. show that I'm too old to have been exposed to. Yeah. Uh -huh. Look, I mean, look, I would like to point out that I was not a middle-aged woman before COVID began. I wasn't. I was not a middle-aged woman before COVID began. Matt, the vaccines did this to me. Yeah, it's about, yeah, yes, it, sure, it did. Those, <laughs> those mRNA Teresa, jabs turned you into a middle-aged woman. You're still Teresa Tam, Teresa Tam must be held accountable for what she's done to me. You know, the risk to Canada is low, but the aging to Jen is high. You're still in your 30s. You got a few more months. Enjoy them. I'm now, I'm not even 40 anymore. Now I'm 41. I'm two years ahead of you. Look, let me say. Matt, I thought I was passing. I thought I was passing as a young woman. And Paul0043 child in our YouTube comments, who's looking at me like a mom using the word goon cave, has dispelled all of my illusions. And I've been really struggling with it this week. I think so I've told thanks, you this. Asshole. I think I've told you this before. To me, I knew I was an adult because I live um, right by a high school, and there's a constant parade of high school students going by my house all day. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that, it, as is typical for high school age girls throughout history, they're wearing as little as possible, right? And I started to think, why aren't they wearing a sweater? How could their parents <laughs> let them out of the house like this? They're going to catch cold. That she's going to be freezing. That cannot be comfortable. In the back of my mind, I went. I became a dad. Like yep. that. Like somewhere along the line. Yep. I I see. Somewhere along the line, young beautiful see, women are like not not it anymore. It's, I just, just I want to go offer mm -hmm. them a sweater. 
please, please cover up. You look uncomfortable. How could yeah. her parents allow this? Like she's freezing. <laughs> she's going to get pneumonia. <laughs> Um, I, I had my moment when I was watching Scream, and I remember watching the original Scream from the '90s. And when I first watched it, when I was a, when I was young, I really identified with Drew Barrymore, who is the first character killed on screen in, in Scream. Uh -huh. Like she's the first one who picks up yeah, the phone and does the popcorn. I, I'm I'm narrating this because I'm now assuming my audience has not seen the original 1990 whatever version of Scream. Is it 2000s? Who knows? Anyway. I can't remember. <laughs> in the first, in the ver first version of the film, it's Drew Barrymore who who gets killed as as the as the movie opens, and like she's she's dying like on her on her patio, and then the parents roll up. And when I first watched the film, I was identifying with the Drew Barrymore character dying the, in the film, and then I remember watching the film. Yeah as an adult and going like, oh my God, those parents, imagine, imagine the horror of pulling up and seeing your daughter dying on the, you know, and there's just, there's something that happens in your brain when you cease to be a young person. Yeah. See, but at the same time, you feel like you're still a young person. I don't feel like I was different at, at 29. I I have a version of that with Superbad, the, uh, mm. the, the, the comedy of that. When I saw Superbad, I guess it was in my 20s, late 20s. I thought it was one of the funniest comedy movies I'd ever seen. I thought it perfectly captured the recklessness, the awkwardness, but also some of the tender moments of friendship and love of being in high school. And I guess in my 20s, I could still remember that. And I saw Superbad. I thought it was hilarious. And then during the pandemic at some point, because we had nothing else to do, my wife and I were just watching movies we remembered seeing together. And we watched Superbad. And we both came away from it being like, but where are their parents? This is so irresponsible for these kids to be out all night like this. Like, see, when when we were when we were younger, we're still young, but when we were younger, it was barely plausible that you could disappear for an evening and your parents would not have an expectation of being in touch with you at all times because cell phones were just starting. By the time of Superbad, no, everybody had a smartphone by then, or at least a cell phone. So I remember in my 20s thinking this is a hilarious movie that perfectly captures adolescence and awkwardness. In my late 30s, I watched it and I'm like, this is terribly irresponsible parenting. I, the, the reason I brought all this up, and I know this sounds weird. Well, I, I, before we before we finally do that, I'll just say to our commentary, it will happen to you too, sir, child among us. And then the other thing I would like you to do for one moment is to uh, uh, sing Hello Darkness while I stare off into the abyss for a minute. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've, I don't remember the words. I've come Doesn't to matter. walk okay, with you good. again. We're good. Yeah. Pin. Let's move I on. know the song, but I, I couldn't do the lyrics. I could Go. hum it. Go. Um, the reason I actually bring this up, it's interesting because I am officially past the middle age marker and you're careening towards it in a couple of months. But I think in the context of, of Brian Mulroney having passed away at the age of 84, I don't have a lot to say. I was a kid yeah. when he was prime minister. It's true. It's true. And I mean, it's not it's not for me to say for a moment that I don't think this is a news story. And in our dispatch, we, we have reached out to some people in our orbit who can write thoughtful things about Brian Mulroney, the man, the prime minister, the era he was in. But I was 10 when he left office and I was. By the time I was in journalism in my 20s, he had already sort of completed 
that rehabilitation, right? Because he left office unpopular. The party got wiped out. There were the the allegations of financial impropriety. And then he overcame those gradually. The, the liberals began to run into problems. The conservatives began to drift back into contention. The conservatives united. And Brian Mulroney became an elder statesman of Canadian politics. By the time I was in a position where I could cover him as a journalist, he had already completed that or was or was almost there. I would just like to note that, like, after other people made us feel old, we're now making a lot of our listeners feel old. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In all seriousness, I was thinking about this last night. There are going to be politicians that I will be able to effectively eulogize when when they pass away and may they live a thousand years like I'm, I'm not wishing harm on any of them but there are leaders we have had that i have observed in action throughout their career being you know fighting for the leadership spending a spell in opposition becoming premier or prime minister i have in my career the ability to write those kinds of uh, obituaries now some of these people either when they were in office or after I've developed relationships with close friendships, but you start, you start emailing back and forth and you connect with these people as human beings. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to do that, but probably not for about 30 years because the life expectancy left of the people who have been in positions of power while I've been a journalist is going to be anywhere from 15 to 45 years. I was going to say that's pretty optimistic. 30 years, Matt. I mean, people, we're at the age where people are going to stop start dropping around us. That's going to happen. Yeah, but I'm thinking specifically of the ones that I actually will have any value. Yeah, fair enough. It could be anyway. anywhere from 15 to 45 years, assuming that I'm still in the business and that they hit their life expectancy. Yes, but I'm just saying people often don't hit their life expectancy. And people, once you hit 40, man, your friend group and your peer group, just your colleague group starts like randomly, oh, someone gets cancer 52 or whatever yeah. like we're we're entering that phase of life where we start losing people which oh, you know, is i got a i got um, a letter from a friend this week telling me that she's done oh and she she's a bit older but no it happens i know yeah so no anyway, I mean, the, the only thing i uh, two things that i have to say about mulberry because like you i mean he came to power the year i was born uh, one, obviously, I think one of the major legacies with the benefit of hindsight that we can see is obviously free trade. We we totally forget, firstly, uh, I think we often forget how left, although right-left doesn't necessarily fit into modern paradigms here, the concept of right and left shifts over time, but we forget how comparatively left Trudeau was mm-hmm. and how, I mean, I wrote a, a, an article about Trudeau's foreign policy, for example, and the way that he was trying to detach us from from American influence. and. Brian Mulroney radically reversed that trend and made us, if anything, much more economically and I think even culturally integrated with the United States. And in hindsight, that was the it was a radical shift from what had come before, and it was the right move. Um, we are economically integrated with the United States, and attempts to to, to fail to acknowledge that are folly and have proven folly over time. Um, so I think that he deserves some prop for that. I don't have like a, a granular analysis of his time in office, but I do think that we could go back and say that he, Trudeau Sr., and maybe one or two other prime ministers are going to go down in long history as as among the most influential figures in our political history. Um, The only other thing I have to note is the timing of it is weirdly propitious, and I don't mean to get superstitious about this, 
but almost within 24 hours of uh, the 40th anniversary of the day when Pierre Trudeau Sr. resigned. And remember, there was a lot of sort of half-joking speculation that Trudeau would use this opportunity to go for his own walk in the snow. Mm-hmm. Um, like People were kind of almost superstitiously looking at the timing of this. We get the death of the man who replaced Trudeau. Yeah. In what was then, by the way, I'll remind people, was then the, the biggest majority government in Canadian history. Which polls conservative, tell us. Conservative government yeah. that came after the end of an unpopular Trudeauian era. So it's there's a weird sort of yeah. rhyming history thing happening right now, which is very propitious. I, um, um, I, talk I, mean, I don't need with... to cast the bones. I mean, maybe I'll bring out the bones, but... Um, uh, I'd be kind of spooked by that if I were a liberal right now. I spoke uh, with John Ibbotson of the Globe not, uh, this not, morning. Not the polling numbers aren't spooky enough, but there you go. No, I, well, no, I, I think it's relevant. And I spoke with John Ibbotson, uh, the Globe columnist. We were talking about this, this just this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. He's got a column coming out tomorrow on Saturday, which uh, I, I'm looking forward to reading. Um, one of the things we were talking about was ch- changing of generations. And mm-hmm. John made the point, and he's right, that we cannot... We, we cannot forget the fact that things like generations or political eras, these are abstractions often constructed with the benefit of historical hindsight. So let, let's agree to that first. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've been mulling over in my head uh, since, the, since we heard that Mr. Mulroney had passed away was that I think a lot of our politics since 1993 has been what we could kind of lump in together in a, in a vague post-Mulroney era, because after Mulroney left office, the conservative party was destroyed. Like it, mm-hmm. it schismed, like it actually broke down into constituent parts. And I'm not convinced that that war has ever fully ended. I know like even today you'll hear me, well, this is, I was a progressive conservative and Pierre Polyev never speaks of that. I'm not casting doubt on the coherence of the conservative party of Canada. They smell victory. They're united. I get it. But I still think a lot of the dynamic in Canadian conservatism and between conservatives and liberals, big C, big L, has been in a weird post Mulroney phase for a long time. And it was it was uh, it was Mitch Heimpel who wrote a really interesting piece for us, I guess, about a year ago, where he talked about how there was an Obama era of leaders. There was a generation of, of Obama leaders and how they're fading. And they're being mm. knocked off uh, by mm-hmm. by political fortunes. The only ones hanging on are Macron in France and Trudeau mm-hmm. in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much longer either of those guys is going to be in that job. And what we have, I don't I'm not an expert in French politics. I pay a little bit of attention, but not a lot. But the conservative train is coming down the tunnel right at the liberals right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we are exiting the post Mulroney era of politics. And you could maybe say that the post Mulroney era ended when the conservatives reunited. You could say it ended when Trudeau won. You can you can pick whatever arbitrary marker you want. But Canadian politics feels different now in a way it didn't four years ago or 10 years ago or 20. And I'm trying to figure out maybe. I don't know when the post Mulroney era ended, if that's even a thing we agree existed. I think it was before now, but the passing, his passing away might be sort of a symbolic bookend to an era in Canadian politics. It's a, it's nastier now. And I think it's stupider now. 
are we, is the post Mulroney era ever? What are we into now? Are we just in the dumb Twitter era of Canadian politics? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's safe to say that we're in the populist era of politics, right? Like, I don't think that's, that's in dispute. Um, yep. And I, I don't say populist. I use populist in the most neutral term yep. way of using it. that term popular. Populism isn't necessarily good or bad. Populism isn't necessarily uh, left or right. Um, sometimes populism is a, is a highly necessary antidote toward uh, to the accretion of technocracy yep. or the accretion of, of, of cultural power in too narrow a source or, or economic power in too small yeah. a source. Limited so institutions, which then ossify and become stupid. That's right. And I do think that we are at the, the era in which that's happened. Yep. And the populism is a natural and to some extent healthy and necessary reaction to that. I mean, so they call it reactionary politics in a very negative sense. But remember that reactionary means people are reacting to something. Mm -hmm. And if you don't address what they're reacting to, then you can't stop the reaction, right? Um, but populist politics also is a really hard dragon to ride, right? Populism politics also isn't new in Canada. Remember, like you have, you had, you had Preston Manning, you had reform, you've had various populist outbreaks here in, in Canada, um, especially in the provinces. Like this is not a new thing. This is part of a cycle of what I would think of almost a Wagnerian kind of Gotterdammerung kind of cycle that, that happens in politics over various periods, depending on how long and how effective the institutions can, can maintain themselves. Um, but the problem with populism is that it either leads to a period of renewal of those institutions, or it just leads to blind, messy, unnecessary and, and pointless destruction of those institutions. Um, so you need, if you're going to lead a populist movement, you need to have it led by someone who is thoughtful and intelligent and capable of engaging and adopting real and significant reform and doesn't just want to burn the place down for the sake of burning the place down. You know, sometimes you do need to burn things down, but you also need to be able to build. And I think that yeah. that, that for me um, highlights the way that I'm thinking of and getting concerned about the inevitable conservative populist uprising. Like, I think you and I are in agreement that this could go one of two ways. This goes into a place where a conservative government actually deals with our now innate uh, state capacity and obviously corruption issues. We'll be getting that into that later into the podcast. Um, and is willing to open the door to hard conversations on topics that Canadians are typically loath to address because we are complacent and unwilling to demand transparency and un, un, unwilling to sort of shake the boat too much or rattle the, the, the chains too much. That could all be good and positive necessary, or he's going to take the easy route and he's going to do something that is stupid and superficial. Um, and I don't know enough about Pierre Polyev and his character to understand where he's going to ride this dragon or if he can, but I think we're all going to, we're all going to have to strap in and, and figure that out. Can I inject a bit of nuance here? Yeah, go for it. It's what I'm known for. Nuance. Yeah, nuance. Angry, angry, bald man nuance. That's what I want. It's the best kind. It's going to be both. Mm. And one of the things that is going to happen if and when Pierre Polyev becomes prime minister, and I've, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I'm worried that the motivating principle behind the conservative party right now, at least in and around Pierre Polyev, is revenge. Revenge mm. against liberals, but also revenge against other tranches of the conservative movement. Mm -hmm. And the revenge can perhaps be served simply by active victory. 
Mm -hmm. Aha, you fuckers. You thought we couldn't do it. Now we've done it. But I think Canadian politics right now is motivated by fear and anger. And look, I'm not not wearing rose-colored glasses. I get it always has been, at least to a little bit. But I think right now it's the primary motivation. And a big motivating thing here is revenge, vengeance. And that's bad because you talk about burning down institutions. That's that's what revenge gets you. But I also think probably if only as part of a natural process of political renewal, a new government will come in. They'll blow out some dead weight and probably some things will get better. Maybe in some cases only by accident. Like, you know, it's kind of like, you know, like we'll, we'll, out with the old and the new, which won't be an automatic improvement in every era. And I'm cynical enough to know that it'll actually make things worse in some, but it might also kickstart some things that are broken. So five years from now, we could have a federal government that is in some ways, uh, see, I'm using my bad hand here. I can't rattle off things. We're going to have things that are worse, mm-hmm. things that are stupider, and some things that are better. And and I don't know if it'll be coherent. Oh, and it's better because of this policy or that. I think we just probably need to fire some people and yeah. their successors will be better. And there's there's value just in that for its own sake. There's value in yeah. renewal for its own sake. I mean, you saw this happen in Alberta after like 44 years of PC power. Everybody just understood that like we needed another government for a couple of years, if nothing else, but to just to blow out some of the structures that had gotten rotten and corrupt. Like that was just what needed to happen. And it did, <laughs> you know, and I, I will give, this is part of the reason why I give the NDP a lot of credit here in Alberta, even though I realize that there's probably some mixed feelings about them among our audience, but like the, 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 the system- need a kick in the ass every now and then. They needed to be kicked in the ass. They yeah. needed to be thrown out. The system, the, 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 the party apparatus had become indistinguishable from the government apparatus and that, that inevitably leads to corruption and decay. It just needed to be done. So anyway, um, the other one- Can I, I, can I just jump in, Jen, on, on one yeah. re- reply to that? I, I think sure. you're right. I was talking recently with a friend of mine who is uh, a federal liberal, and they are they are very worried about Pierre Polyev as being the vanguard of evil. Yeah. I I, I don't know. Maybe, I maybe it, not. I, th- but I, I think I, that that's, that's, they're misjudging him. They're mis- well, they're misjudging the risk. Well, maybe they are. Maybe they are. I don't know. But I, I'm simply going to say, I, I, I bring that up, Jen, simply to contextualize this. Yeah. There is a high degree of emotional alarm among yes. certain Canadian liberals and other progressives generally that Pierre Polyev is like evil and he's going to do evil things. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I, what I think is interesting is I was chatting with my friend about this. This is just a few days ago. One of the things I was talking about is the problem is, guys, your government is old and adrift. And you, you let's say you sold me on Pierre Polyev evil. You, you convinced me of that. What you are offering me as an alternative is incompetent decay. Well, and where and I, that like if your case electorally speaking is going to be the other guys like hitler you have got to offer up something other than and we can't get shit done but at least we're not hitler because if your government consistently can't get things done you're gonna get a hitler eventually because that's how this works repeated acts of failure and institutional incompetence will eventually provoke a populist backlash so right now People are already saying, including Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP a couple of weeks ago in an interview was, man, maybe it would have been better if O'Toole had won in 2021. Oh, okay. So imagine 
Pierre Polyev, evil as a campaign slogan, works for the liberals and they squeak out some kind of victory in 2025. What do they think they're running against in 2029? Well, I, I would even take that. Firstly, I mean, I'm writing a book on Satanism right now. So like uh-huh. my concepts of evil are a little I've had I've had to spend a lot of time meditating on the concepts of evil. And it's kind of messed with my brain a little bit. But I think my takeaway from it's aged you terribly. It's aged me terribly. <laughs> and the vaccines. <laughs> but sorry, but one, I just saw that opportunity. One of the one of the lessons that I've taken away from the process of researching this book is like, don't call other people evil before you do a real careful examination of your own soul. Find the evil within yourself and don't worry about the evil of other people because like y- y- you can't know. You have to work on the evil inside um, because almost always when people point the finger and say evil, what they're actually doing to get Freudian here is they're projecting the evil within. That's, that's the takeaway. Human evil isn't something that's always easy to define or identify, especially considering our own our own sight of evil is, is blinded by by what we're bringing to that interpretation, which is not to say like, you know, I'm not saying like Hitler wasn't evil. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying, Twitter. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I'm saying that you need to to be really, really careful to uh, to extract the moat and beam in your own eye, however you want, whatever that biblical passage is. Um, and I don't middle aged this... woman defends Hitler. Yeah, shut up. Um, and, and I think that the, this particular liberal government is very, very bad at that. And as a result, they well, we, this gets into conversations we've already had about the, the problems of this middle of this particular government. Um, but also, the other thing I think the other problem with this is like just calling people Hitler, calling people Trump, calling people evil. I mean, I think that this this um, framing is no longer as emotionally effective as it once was. No, it just isn't. Nope. So, so anyway, no, I agree with you. We're going to talk about online harms. Like and subscribe. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, we oh, are. Sorry. But oh, no, 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 sorry, we sorry. are. I didn't First of all, hey, like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. subscribe. Uh, we are going to talk about this, but I actually just want to put a pin down. I want to respond to what you just said there. Oh, okay. But I want to do it one segment later because I think there's a point you just made has particular resonance for when we, we're going to talk about the Winnipeg Laboratory document. Mm, yeah. I want, to, I want to loop back to something you just said there, but it makes sense to do that later. So just okay. put a pin on that and remind me. Well, meditations on evil will be the theme of the podcast then. That and being old and aging and death. And God rest Brian Mulroney. Now let's talk meditations <laughs> on evil. That's an abrupt tonal <laughs> shift. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Uh, all right, so um, online harms. You know what? You, that legislation came down on Monday. I think you actually said, um, you know what? Let me set it, set it up this way. This is a much improved bill. This is, I don't think it is overreaching in the ways a lot of us worried about. I think it is focused in the well, except main. For, except for the part where it does overreach. But well, we'll, we'll get, get into that. that. I think it, so it focuses on like seven key areas of online harms. And I think it's they're the right ones i think like from from a perspective of focus the online harms act which has now been proposed uh, the the bill has been like introduced is very good at i think being appropriately focused on what i think most of us would agree are online harms we're talking child sex abuse material we're talking revenge we have to be careful about how we talk about this stuff for the sake of the algorithm so we're talking about we can't put it in display copy except for the fact that it gets transcribed 
So we're talking about, so just for the purposes of our audience, we, we do need to point out that uh, when we use certain words, this might poten pot uh, potentially affect our algorithmic um, positions yeah. on various platforms. So we're going to be talking about revenge prawns. Yeah, revenge or prawns, yeah. or we're going to talk child sex abuse material mm. or sex abuse. Can't say material. I can't say the A word. Okay, we're talking about yeah. bad photos of underaged individuals. Better. Good. Okay. Yes. We're also talking about previously private material of your former romantic partner being released without their permission. Yes. For the purposes of revenge. revenge We're talking about um, saying things that make it likely to want. See, you can't. Yeah. To, to for, their, for certain to people to... to no longer exist as individuals or as a or yep. as an identifiable group that we we're talking say. about saying things that might get people hurt mm -hmm. big enough yep. i think in general the online harms act is targeting the right things yes. real problems that need better solutions you and i have talked about this a lot a lot of the stuff being targeted here is already illegal but what we have found is that the police are either not willing to go after it or don't have the powers to go after it in a meaningful way so there might be real room here for real progress on this but we published an op-ed by josh dehas on friday in the line that i think so you know i reading through the bill reading all the reaction over it i was like good 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 ah they're gonna fuck this up yeah and what they're gonna screw up is the section on hate speech because yes. they're not going to be able to define it, it that's right it's you, you can never do well it. okay so let's let's get into this so i think the, the problem with this bill is that essentially it's four bills in one mm -hmm. and the first three bills are actually not not even fine i think they're actually really good Mm -hmm. All right. And I think you're right that the, the types of materials that are being targeted here are the correct things to be targeting. Um, I think they're, the plan here is that they're going to create a, create some kind of um, additional regulatory body. So, for example, if you are the victim of some of these types of harms, you can then go to the regulatory body and the regulatory body can force um, this, the, the, the platform to take down these materials. Yeah. Yep. And also there is going to be um, a room for appeal of those types of orders as well, if they feel that the material is not appropriately there. I mean, I think that for this kind of a body to work, it needs to have very clear, straightforward definitions. It needs to... Um, real uh, power be, that could be used fast, not get you, bogged you, down in process. Yep. Yep. You need to be, and it needs to be credibly staffed with a significant number of people to address some of these issues. And it needs to be very transparent in terms of what it's taking down and why. Um, so like all of that could be good. I also think that what's also really good about the bill is that, um, uh, uh, and also the, the type, most of these types of harms isn't hard to identify. Like it's not hard to identify. Most of the stuff we're the, alluding the prawn, to, the bad the pictures. Of, yeah, the, the, the prawns of revenge and the prawns affecting children. Like this is, most of this stuff is pretty straightforward. Um, very little of it's going to fall into a gray zone. Um, the other thing that I really like about the bill is that it's it's baking in more responsibility for the social media um, platforms. The, the, yeah. the platforms now have a duty or a responsibility to try and prevent access to much of this material. Yeah. Um, that's good. And I think that they're baking in, for example, age appropriate design. So this this would be and I, again, this is brilliant. This is the idea that if you have people under the age of 18 using your platform, 
they shouldn't have even the ability to share messages or or, vi- or sorry um pictures of themselves through your dm spaces like yeah. that is an example of age appropriate design because that potentially um uh prevents the kind of predation that people can use to try and get um explicit materials of of uh, underage people um so, so like there's good stuff in this bill and then you get into the hate speech stuff the hate speech stuff Basically, they're reconstituting something called Section 13. Section 13 is uh, takes, I'm not gonna explain this properly because there's a very technical legal way to explain this, but it kind of takes the concept of hate speech out of a pure criminal code matter and allows human rights tribunals to adjudicate what constitutes hate speech and, and what the fines for that are. And when we had that system in place previously, it was abused to shut down mere controversial speech. The most famous example of that was um, Mark, writer Mark Stein, who was basically the provocateur back in his day when we were young. Um, he wrote a, a story about Islam for Maclean's magazine, a credible Canadian institution. This was deemed hate speech and um, he had to go through a whole criminal quasi-criminal process to shut this down. The problem with the human rights tribunals, I think has been written about at length, is one, they are not criminal courts, they're quasi-judicial. They don't operate by the same standard as criminal courts, which means, I think one of the key distinctions is that in order to be have a criminal prosecution in, in hate speech in a criminal court, you need to meet um, the standard of hate speech beyond a, re- like, um, mm-hmm. beyond a reasonable doubt. The human rights tribunals have a lower standard for essentially conviction there it's it's probable on the balance of probability balance balance of probabilities which is a much lower criminal standard that is more applicable to civil courts than civil standard yeah the civil standard exactly um and the other problem is of course the people appointed to these tribunals are they're they're appointees They're, they're they're not judges they're not like many of them don't have the same kind of judicial background that we would expect for people appointed to criminal courts, because the people who have those kinds of backgrounds get appointed to criminal courts. Mm-hmm. So you get people who are kind of coming out of an activist point of view, and they're, they're political appointees, right? So their version of what constitutes hate speech is very colored by the um, vision of the government that appointed them. I mean, Aside here, and I can't get into too many details of this because I sort of got a little bit of a peek on the inside of a human rights tribunal proceeding um, a couple of years ago uh, between a conservative person who was using the human rights tribunals in order to defend their access to a particular space. And I think the conservative person, even though I think conservative ought to be wary about abusing human rights tribunals themselves because I find that very hypocritical, uh, in this case, it was interesting for me to see the more liberal def- um, defendant uh, put out a statement of defense, which I'm not supposed to have read, so I'm not going to get into details about it. But it was such an interesting defense because it basically said the quiet part out loud. And the quiet part out loud was human rights tribunals exist to protect essentially left wing views and marginalized views. They don't exist to protect conservative views or religious views. Um, and my understanding of the outcome of that was that essentially the human rights tribunal was like, yeah, not so much. Um, and there was a settlement on this particular case that, that I think was favored by the conservative individual. But I do think that you could also find lots and lots of examples of human rights tribunals 
being used inappropriately to create or enforce a kind of consensus on even fairly extreme left-wing views. I think the most infamous of this was when the Human Rights Tribunal uh, examined the Jessica Yaniv case. This was the case of the transgender woman who had not received uh, bottom surgery and who had some deep racial animus, especially towards South Asian women and South Asian individuals, and was attending um, private clinic, private um, spas, spas of these women's and demanding that they wax, wax the, the genitalia. their genitals. Um, and this was something that I think a lot of people in media knew was going on, but it was radically undercovered until it was a foreign, foreign, I think it was a Daily Mail or something like that, a foreign journalist started to cover it in, in, in um, significant detail. And it was an example of like, Canada's gone nuts. Like, what the hell is this? That this is not, that this is even being considered by even a quasi-judicial court. This should have instantly been thrown out. And it wasn't. It was not instantly thrown out. Now, ultimately, they ruled against Yaniv. I have a I have a suspicion that the media coverage on this Help. helped the mm. defendants in this case. But meanwhile, you know, these relatively poor South Asian women were dragged before these onerous human rights tribunals because they didn't choose to accept that being forced to wax genitals was an expression of gender affirming or a protected or, or discriminatory act. Like specifically which genitals do not being genitals? forced to wax a penis and a scrotum. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, like, and then there were, there's other cases. I believe the case of the, uh, the uh, Quebec comedian who uh, got himself into significant trouble, years long legal, legal trouble because he made very inappropriate jokes about the disabled child. Yeah. And ultimately this came through the human rights tribunals in Quebec and wound up before the Supreme court where it was only ruled like by one vote that we were allowed to make offensive jokes in this country. Like the, these are, these are sort of weird parallel court processes. And that in and of itself has always been a bit of, has been a significant problem because it meant that if you were offside of, of a fairly gray line on a lot of controversial issues, you know, you could find yourself brought up spending tens of thousands of dollars, hiring a lawyer, defending your reputation and being brought up for, kind of dodgy courts. This is something we have in Canada. And when section 13 was repealed, the human rights tribunal still exists, but the section 13 was repealed and hate crime was hate crimes were essentially folded back into the criminal system, criminal system. which was appropriate, which was appropriate. Now we can talk about the philosophical problems of um, adjudicating what's hate speech and what isn't within a criminal system, but it's much, much harder to adjudicate hate speech to meet a criminal standard according to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And also the courts are very loath to press charges on this on the criminal side, not on the human rights tribunal side, but on a criminal court, almost very rarely, if ever even happens. And when it does happen, it's precedent setting stuff. So um, we do still have, even prior to the Online Harms Act, we do have hate speech laws on the books but they're almost never enforced or enacted. Mm -hmm. So what the liberals are doing right here is they are trying to, they're, well, they are reviving section 13. They're folding it back into the human rights tri tribunal system. And they're adding a bunch of stuff that's frankly off the chain crazy. So not only are we looking at um, uh, fines and penalties of 20 and $50,000 respectively for people who've uh, been, been flagged, but also now they're talking about even using um, essentially prior restraint. If there's yeah. reasonable, if there's reasonable, 
yeah, pre-crime. If there's reason to believe that this person will commit a hate crime, you they can be subject to fines, to penalties, and even house arrest. House arrest. I mean, that's that is bananas stuff for speech. Like it means that while we have a government that is in one hand making loosening the actual penalties for violent crime, they're radically tightening the penalties for speech crimes. Um, and that not only has forces us to deal with the philosophical problems of defining hate speech, but it means that we're oh, the chilling effect of this is 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 is, is nuts. So anyway, I, I, I it's difficult for you to even explain how bad shit this is. Like, yeah, I think like, like, the other one is like, oh, the other one that got me was the the fact that we're now going to basically have a maximum life imprisonment term for quote unquote inciting genocide or, or inciting genocide just just so clear for the people who think this is just a conservative problem oh uh, i know exa- you- can i can i guess what you're about to say can go. i guess go for it what will prime minister polyev do to the people chanting from the river to the sea outside of a hospital bingo because like if you accept this standard for hate crime all that protest not only becomes illegal that kind of protest is now subject to life imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think that a conservative government's going to, if, you, if you're not worried about a liberal government abusing this, because you think that the human rights tribunals are all stacked with ideological people to your favor, who do you think is going to stack them after Pierre gets in power? How do you think a conservative, like, again, I, I can't, you and I make this point so often, you can't give powers to your friends that you wouldn't give to your worst enemies. You can't do this. It, it it completely disintegrates. It's like acid to any kind of institutional credibility. Eh. Eh. That's my rant. I'm sorry. It was good. Why, no, am, I so, why am I apologizing? That's such a Canadian female thing to do. Fuck you. I'm not sorry. I did rant. Take it. Good for you. That's yeah. better. Uh, yeah, no, I basically agree. Like, you know, my, my sense, what I will say in defense of the liberals here is... I understand why they want to do something because there is hate speech out there. There's vile, disgusting, awful stuff. It is proliferating rapidly in online spaces. And I think it is spilling out into the real world and I get the impulse to do something. But when we're talking about images released, intimate private images released of a former romantic partner to humiliate and belittle or harass that person, we can we can define that we can figure out how to do that when it's images of under images or videos of underaged persons we can define that we already have the criminal code provisions exist when one of the things we keep coming back to here is the difficulty of doing it with hate and i understand the psychology of this the problem endures good people want to do something about it But the reason we keep having to try and try again is because it's fucking hard. And maybe, and I don't look, I mean, look, here on this podcast, we never apologize for being cynical. I am cynical. My cynicism has been earned by almost 20 years of watching this country at work in a professional capacity. I come by my cynicism, honestly, but I don't want to ever morph into the completely and always cynical asshole. Because the world's full of those people who just think it's not worth ever trying anything because nothing will work. I don't want to be that guy. 
I want to be solutions oriented, but can we at least ground our understanding of legislating hate speech in the fact that every prior effort has effectively failed, not because people didn't give a shit before, not because they were stupid or incompetent, but because it's really hard. And are we open, even on an intellectual level, to contemplating the fact that it's impossible, that in a free society, you know, where we've already recognized, at least as a philosophical ideal, and I know this is an, an American quote here, but it applies in Canada, that it is better to let a hundred guilty men go free than to send one innocent man to, uh, to prison. Do we do we actually believe that? Is this something we're actually prepared to live by? Are we prepared to allow vile things to be said online or in person to avoid criminalizing speech that should be allowed. And I think there's a, a delusional belief, well-intended, well-placed coming from a, uh, from the heart outwards that it's like, if we can just get the legislation written, right, we'll be able to do it. Yeah. Because there's, but, but it's, it's the relying on legislation, but while at the same time being unable to um, confront the fundamental philosophical problem. Right? If we just write the law perfectly enough, we it just won't write be the law perfectly. We, we, we will be able to get around the philosophical problem of the difficulty of defining hate speech. And I know that we're going to get a lot of criticism from lawyerly types who are going to say, well, we've already defined hate speech adequately in criminal law. Why is it so hard to port that over here? And the answer is, it actually, we haven't, There, it's not clear what's hate speech in criminal law. In fact, there's lots of examples of even extremely vile speech that are litigated over and fought over for years in criminal law because they because the concept of hate speech is is a highly subjective concept. You've mentioned there, the Quebec comic that had to be that had to be appealed because it, yes, yeah, it yeah. was appealed multiple times and ultimately made its way to the Supreme Court at and a was and was permitted. And I believe actually some of the some of the lower courts actually ruled against the comic. Which would have set a precedent the details, for details, like, but I remember it was a long and winding road. It was a long deals. and winding road that this that, that this comic had to spend years and significant amounts of money fighting for his right to tell a really, really awful, offensive joke about a disabled child. Yeah, I mean, like, but and, and like, it's hard and it's emotionally difficult for people to side with the guy who's telling the terrible joke about the disabled child. But the problem is, like, okay, you can't tell a joke about the disabled child. That sets a precedent here. That sets a precedent for what is permitted, what kinds yeah. of jokes we are allowed to permit in a society. And once you establish that that precedent can be set, you lose it. You lose it step by step by step yeah. and you lose your freedoms. Good, you know, the world to hell is paved in good intentions. You lose your freedom step by step by step. And to me, this essentially goes to the liberals mentality that we were talking about at the top of the, the, the show. All of our enemies are evil. We're not. Nothing we do can be evil. And we're going to project our, our, you know, we're going to not confront our own shit and in the process can project our evil onto others. And that's going to justify anything we do that might be wildly over the line. This and is, this, that's pretty that's close dangerous. to the pin I put down for Winnipeg Laboratory. So let's oh, move there on go. there. Let's move on to Will Winnipeg one, Laboratory. A closing thought on online harms. And it's just not even, not even me pontificating on this. The one thing I want to mention is simply this government has had significant deliverology problems, as you know. I don't know if it will have the ability to move this through the legislative process in the time available. And I'm not saying 
I'm not even passing judgment on it. Like, I think you and I are actually very aligned on this. I think 80, 85% of what's in this bill is good. I think maybe 10% of it is well-intended, but probably impossible to execute. 5% of it is nuts. <laughs> but I think it's... I Look, is it possible that with NDP support, they can advance some version of this into law in what's what time is left in their mandate? Yes. Am I betting the family farm on it? No. And I also Just, highly suspect that there are six sections of it that will be immediately repealed the second we have a conservative well, government. I mean, the entire thing could be immediately repealed, but the second. Yeah, but, it, yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying, like, I, I, I suspect that we will not be in a new speech regime mm -hmm. for more than like three months by the time this is all said and done. I think what so, you could honestly do in this, Jen, and like, I, I guess I'm, maybe I'm offering free advice to the, the liberals here. You could pull 85% of this bill into a clean piece of legislation and pass and it, it quick. A, and it would be a win. Yeah. Like it would be an unequivocal win. Just take the hate speech out stuff out. Just aside, just make it, make a, make an executive decision that this is not something you have time to deal with. Pass the stuff that is unequivocally good. And you have an unmitigated, no, no caveat W to your name. And you could probably also wedge the conservatives on it. You probably could. Yeah. yeah. Like if yeah. you pull out the hate speech stuff and you lead the intimate images, the criminal harassment, threats of violence. 100%. Uh, material depicting minors, you could have something that would be a market improvement in most cases on the legal status quo that we have that mm -hmm. would probably materially improve the lives of Canadians who are being harassed or victimized by this stuff, yep. and that it would be really awkward for the Conservatives not to support. And you could punt the rest to a special committee of parliament or a task force, or you could grab one of those ubiquitous retired Supreme Court justices and you could get him to work on the stuff that's going to kill him on this one. But so, yeah. hey, what? Ne never let it be said that we do not come offering good faith advice and solutions. Like and subscribe. All right, let's talk Winnipeg Laboratory. Do you want do you want to lead on this one? I feel like I've been talking for a while. It's just, I mean, the documents <sighs> came out and they're exactly what I expected them to be. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the the documents came out on the so I, mean, I don't know. Do you want to go into the backstory here for people who maybe haven't been following this? Here's this is a one a crazy minute recap. Story. Yeah, because I had yeah. to recap this on my radio show this morning. Okay. There were two scientists working at the National Microbiology Lab Laboratory in Winnipeg. It is the highest security uh, laboratory in Canada for dealing with the nastiest threats. And the purpose of these laboratories, and God, I, I talked to them a bunch during the pandemic, is to deal with either novel mutations or fully novel biological threats that have pandemic or epidemic potential. And it's also, although we don't talk about it, it's our first line of defense against biowarfare. Mm. If someone were to hit us with something that was engineered, either for military, strategic, or terrorist purposes, mm -hmm. the nastiest stuff is handled at these laboratories. And years ago, two scientists were fired and there had been rumors that they were fired because they were compromised in some way or, or, or willingly working for a foreign hostile government, which was believed to be China. The government had fought disclosure of these documents to the point where the government took the Speaker of the House to court to try and limit who could see Public Health Agency of Canada's PHAC's information about this. And after a years-long process, redacted versions have been released. And what we've basically discovered is that, first of all, two scientists who are working 
for the laboratory did indeed have links to China, that they were fired, and that all of the effort to suppress these documents over multiple years on grounds of national security was really about avoiding embarrassment to the government. Yeah, it's total bullshit. I mean, this goes back to a bugbear that you and I have been discussing for many years, and that is governments relying on statements like national security, because the second you say national security, national security it's, it's, it, ongoing privacy, investigation, ongoing investigation, matter before the courts, privacy, yeah. these sorts of things. Essentially, the governments use these phrases almost like they're thought terminating cliches and a magical lot of people, deflector shields. magical deflector Boom. shields, yeah. without <laughs> considering the possibility that 99% of the time, the things they're trying to deflect have nothing to do with national security and aren't threats to national security. And in fact, more transparency would make us more credible, both within our within our domestic sphere and to our partners. Like our uh, Five Eye, I'm willing to bet that a lot of Five Eyes and a lot of in intelligence services would take Canada much, much more seriously if we were much more open and transparent when we fuck up, but we're not. Um, and frankly, also if, if the Canadian government held people to account when they do fuck up, which again, we don't. So that's crazy talk, Jen. That's crazy talk. But instead we keep on saying, well, national security. And for a lot of people and a lot of people who want to believe the best about this government or any government, they hear national security and like, well, I guess, I guess we can't know. And this is also why bluntly, when we talk about issues like foreign interference, it's why you and I just don't take claims of national security seriously anymore. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe the government when it says it can't release something because it's a national security. I, I think that's bullshit. I just don't believe it. And it's because we've just seen too many times that it's, it's just a deflector shield to hide from embarrassment and accountability. I, you know what the funny thing is too, I accept that the issue of the, the scientists in the laboratory was a national security issue. It is a national security issue. It's foreign infiltration of a sensitive Canadian site, yeah, but right. that's not a national security issue that cannot be disclosed. Correct. So, right. you know, I've always tried to be a realist on this one because I am a weirdo defense hawk and there are so few of us in Canada. There are things that we have to keep secret. There are military sure. secrets that must be kept. There are intelligence secrets that must be kept. I want to give you an example of something, Jen, that from my career that I actually have referred to before, and I can only do so vaguely. Years ago, when I was at the National Post, I became aware of what I'm going to very Gen generically describe of an issue that posed a security threat to Canada. Okay. And someone in the government told me, yes, it's true. We're fixing it. Please don't publish anything about it now because we won't be ready to defend against it for some time. And we're vulnerable right now. And I went, okay. You know, because sure. I'm a citizen. Yes, like I went, I, that, I, I, they leveled with me. Yes, but, but that, okay, so let's just talk about that because that requires trust between you and your source. Uh -huh. You need to trust that your source isn't going to fuck you over and is being honest with you. And that means that that trust, that source needs to have demonstrated a track record of not, of leveling with you and being honest with you and fucking with you. They were able to convince me that they were aware of the threat and the threat was being mitigated, but that if I said something before it was done, I would make the country more vulnerable, not less. That's and great. as a citizen who didn't want to get anyone hurt or killed, I went, okay. Yes. So and, and most of us are quite reasonable on that kind of stuff, yeah. but there's no reason for us to take a blanket claim yeah. of national security, can't national security seriously at this point. And I don't think that any of us should. 
Um, which gets me to another rant I want to make about the fact that Canadians are highly complacent about transparency. But you know what? I think that that's going to be a column. Make it a column. May I finally loop back to that point I wanted to make before? Let's and go. We, we touched on it with Evil. online harms as well. Evil. First of all, I'm agreeing with you entirely that there kind of to complete my point, there are national security issues. I have dealt with this before. I have been asked to withhold stuff that I had dead to rights until it could be defended against. And I did that. So I'm not going to be lectured by anyone about not taking national security seriously. I take it very seriously. And I, and I will play ball when, when I've, when I think the public interest of Canadians exceeds my journalistic interests, I will put the country first. I've done that before, but I cannot allow someone to just come to me and go, sorry, national security grounds because we now know for a fact as if we didn't know it before that stuff that is simply embarrassing to a canadian agency gets buried under national security grounds and fuck you but what i also think is relevant to something that we talked about in the context of evil and we touched about it with online harms the liberals are going to get pierre polyev elected because i've been looking at some very smart savvy people whose reaction to this document disclosure isn't it was bad that china had infiltrated our top level biowarfare laboratory or it's bad that the government is went to extraordinary lengths to, to hide cover it up under under the largely bullshit grounds of it being a national security issue no but it's bad that pierre polyev is whatever I don't know, whatever it happens to be today. And it's bad that the evil Globe and Mail, that nasty Robert Fife, who does not like the prime minister, that they're writing about it. Guys, when you fuck up, you have got to own it. This is an example to look at. Well, it was bad that our bio warfare or our bio laboratory was infiltrated. And that it was bad that we tried to cover it up. That would require only a very little bit of humility because it's objectively the case that we probably don't want people who have links to foreign governments, hostile ones, working in our level four bio lab. I don't think that's a controversial position. It shouldn't be a controversial position to say that we should not try to bury politically awkward things under the rubric of national security. But apparently it is. But Matt, that would only give uh, uh, ammunition to people who are evil. Don't you understand what's at stake here, Matt? When you cannot accept valid criticism and correct for it, you are setting up the conditions of your own destruction. Correct. That, that is fine. my message to the federal liberals. And you have never been good at it, and you're worse now. You're doing it to yourself. And I know they're convinced it's right-wing disinfo, and it, oh, the post-media, uh, American-owned hedge fund post-media or it's Russian bots. No, 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 guys. All, we can talk about all those things. You're defeating yourselves. And oh, they are. It's incredible to watch. But I mean, like I said, and the, the conservatives will do the same, just whether or not it's five it's years eternal. or 15 years from now, for exactly the same reason. Um, and this is also why they can't pull out of the, they're in. You know, you know, there's a there's a term in, in flying where you're spinning, but you don't know that you're spinning. I know what you mean. But I can't remember the damn term. Yeah, I've used it in writing before. Uh, it's it's like a, you're in a 
it's it's something called the death spiral, but it's one of the things that pilots most fear because you're especially it happens in people in cloudy conditions or the dark where they can't see the ground or see outside. And George like, Jonas, my friend, the late George Jonas, wrote a whole column about it one day because he was a licensed pilot. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's a fascinating phenomenon. But essentially, what happens is you start you start death spiraling toward the ground. But your body kind of acclimates to the feel of the spin and your so instruments you can... say you're death spiraling but you can't believe them because your body tells you you're fine yeah and it's actually one of the most terrifying things that can happen to a pilot because all of your instincts are like we're fine we're fine we're fine i can't see but, but your your instruments are going crazy that's what's i mean that's just what's happening to the liberals here every instrument is giving them the correct information but they feel fine um and they're about to crash into the side of a mountain uh, and that's just how it ends for all of them. A uh, quick little thing I, item that I think follows on this, uh, that is the latest little tidbit from the arrives, the arrive can scam. I actually am starting to think that this might be it. This might be the scandal that takes them out because this one really is spectacular. Uh, for those watching, this is the uh, scandal in which the liberals spent, we think, probably $59 yeah. million dollars on a phone app to track arrivals through customs during COVID. Graveyard spiral. Graveyard spiral. There That's you go. apparently what it's called. Yeah. That's okay. what it's called. It's perfect. Yeah. Uh, so for those who aren't aware, a phone app probably should have cost these guys 80,000, 80,000, hundred grand, even with crazy government markups, maybe you can get to like 500,000, maybe, maybe, um, but when the Auditor General came out, we found out that uh, actually we don't even know how much we've spent. It's probably north of 59 million for this iPhone app. And part of that is because there's so much double dipping and double dealing happening in the federal federal service at this point that the, the, the Auditor General couldn't even keep track of who was doing what to whom. Well, the documents didn't exist. The documents didn't yeah, exist, no paper which in and of itself is highly sus. No, that's uh, right-wing so, disinformation. Russian bots. Pierre Polyev is evil. Cool. Uh, so anyway, so th th this week it came out that actually there is like a, a, a some kind of indigenous contracting segment of the Canadian government that's trying to like connect indigenous contractors to government work, which sounds really noble, but that... It's a good intention on the road to hell. It's a good intention on the road to hell. And then... <laughs> Later this week, Vashi Capellos at CTV basically has is topping this piece. So it turns out, and I'm going to read from it here. Um, just a day after the federal government announced a review of its program to support Indigenous contractors, CTV News has learned that a CEO of a company that prompted the review is an employee of the Department of National Defense. David Yu is the CEO of Dalian Enterprises, which receives $7.9 for its work on the ArriveCan app, which means that David Yeo was both the CEO of some kind of uh, enterprise which helped connect this uh, indigenous contracting program to this RFP system. And if you know a little bit about the background here is that essentially to, to become one of the federal government's preferred contractors is a bit of a bureaucratic process that you probably need to hire experts and lobbyists in order to do. But once you're one of their preferred contractors, it's, a, it's licensed to print money because there's not much competition within that, that sphere which means that essentially the whole system is rife for total abuse. And it looks like this D&D contract, who also hilariously was a PPC candidate, um, was, doing, was, was doing like this kind of like company as a side hustle while he was a D&D employee. 
This is, is bananas. I am awkward with my hobbled hand. I am awkwardly saluting friend of the line, uh, our friend Danica, who I thought had the perfect tweet about this, which was simply that when you have someone who is an employee at the Department of National Defense, an independent government contractor billing the government millions, and also a political candidate, that is a sign that there are too many bureaucrats. Because somehow this guy was doing three things at once, had the time for all of them, and no one connected them at the time. Well, the other interesting thing that I that I think is, like, is kind of been challenging. Government's about, too big. Government's too big. The other the other interesting thing that, that I think is is worth considering is the degree to which a work from home culture has 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 fostered lack of supervision mm -hmm. and also side hustles, right? Among people who should not be doing side hustles. What was the guy's name again? The the dude's name. David Yeo. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the, like the next phase of the story where we find out the guy was also on like the great Canadian baking show. He's coaching an OHL team. Yeah. Like he's like, he's filming a, like he's doing like a, a tele Canada, like documentary on like a small Quebec logging town. Like we're just going to go right across the board on this guy. I mean, the guy's a national just, hero, really. If you're thinking, if you he's just, he's, he's putting us all to shame now, isn't he? Yeah. He's, you know, he's, He's reforcing like the Yukon, like he's every one of these things reliant in some way on a government grant or support. And he's just yeah. got like nine of these gigs going while he, running for the People's Party. You don't you don't want to create a system in which you are adding value to a class of people who are helping private corporations extract rent from the government which seems to be like what we're doing here. We're creating a class of lobbyists and civil service contractors and civil service workers who are taking a cut off of a system that allows privileged or accessed companies to essentially get, get specialized access to RFP processes within the government and make you know millions of dollars off, the, off of the federal government as a process. You know who like that, we would that is that is a deeply, deeply corrupt and problematic problem. And that suggests that essentially you need to radically clear house in the civil service. Do you want to hear me say my most libertarian thing? And you know my position that libertarians are generally nuts. Okay. But nuts in the fun way. Here's here's what I say about libertarians. They all have three ideas and two of them are great. <laughs> Every libertarian I've ever talked to is like, yeah, you know what, we should we should have government services handled at the lowest possible, most proximate level of, uh, of of government so that there's voter accountability. And I go, yeah. And they're like, yeah, we should have the smallest government possible providing core services that can only be handled by government. And the rest should be funded by user fees set at the market rate. And I go, yeah. And then the libertarian says to me, also, we should go back to the gold standard and pull out of NATO. And I go, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, the, like it's, always the, it's always the third rung where they lose me. Um, but the thing that I actually think I, what you just said there, Jen, is exactly right, that we have all these institutions that only exist to serve the other institutions. There's the, the old quip, right? The bureaucracy is expanding to keep up with the expanding bureaucracy. That's kind of where we've gotten ourselves. The purpose but if of you the thing is what the thing does. It's the self-licking ice cream cone. But yeah. what we're really talking about here is the fastest and easiest way to fix this massive tax reform because we would wipe mm. out the entire accounting industry. And I love our accountant, but I'm saying 
I am legally obligated to do something that is so complicated. I need to hire outside expert help to do it. What? (laughs) So anyway, that's me at my most libertarian. To your point about this being the scandal that brings him down. No, it won't. There's not enough time left. Yeah, fair enough. Like, it probably won't matter. I think at this point, everything is just, it's chipping away and it's accreting at their credibility in such a way. That this might be the skit. Like, this might go down in history as the scandal that people remember when they're down. But I think the secular trend of their oblivion is baked in. Yeah, probably. But anyway, on that note, I got to pick up my kid. Like and subscribe. Like and subscribe. Please like. enjoy our meditations on evil and death. Rest in peace, Brian Mulroney. Thank you for listening.